Today's scripture reading is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 18, beginning at verse 5. Listen to the word of God. The king gave orders to Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims than that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord, the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Hear what, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, we are so often caught between heaven and earth, between good and evil, between joy and suffering, between Easter and Good Friday. We pray that through your living word, heaven and earth may come together in our hearing, that you may strike us alive by your grace, and we may be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today's scripture is from the Old Testament's book of 2 Samuel, and this book is part of what's often referred to as the historical books. These books trace the early history of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah as nations and their kings. And while they focus on big events like wars, battles, and international intrigue, they're surprisingly personal. A friend once described these sections of the Old Testament as the soap opera-y parts of the Bible with all its twists and its drama, and that's definitely true here. Here we have King David, the figure who looms largest over the Old Testament, Israel's most prominent king, the original Messiah, the anointed one, blessed and chosen by God. And here we arrive at the tale of a rebellion against him. 
And the worst part is that the leader of the mutiny is Absalom. Say that ten times fast, Absalom. David's own son. That's sort of the soap opera part, right? The leader of the rebellion was none other than, dun, 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 Absalom, the son of the king. That's the big reveal, right? Now, this rebellion's been years in the making and based on David's own unwillingness to act during a crisis. Seven years prior, David's other son, not Absalom, but his other son, Ammon, sexually assaulted his sister Tamar. And David did nothing to redress this despicable assault on his daughter. So Absalom took matters into his own hands, killing his brother Ammon for the violation of his sister. David may have done nothing, but Absalom did too much. So David punished him for his brother's murder by sending him to exile for three years. And eventually, David's nephew, Joab, try to keep all the names, <laughs> all the names straight, Joab convinced Absalom to return home, but David still refused to see his son for another two more years, still bitter about Ammon's murder. All of this, though, served to push Absalom further and further away from David. While David was giving him the silent treatment, Absalom spent his time stewing away, plotting, scheming, part of its resentment towards his father's weakness in not protecting his sister. But the other part is undoubtedly his dad's rejection of him, his lack of forgiveness. Anyone who's experienced this here knows that there are few wounds that sting as much as being shut out by or forsaken by the people who gave you life. So take David's perceived incompetence, add a spit in the face of fatherly unfairness, and you've got a revolutionary ready to wage war against God's own dynasty. And he finds plenty of others with similar grievances to join on in. They have a rebellion in hand. Unfortunately for Absalom, though, the rebellion fizzles out. David's seasoned soldiers crush Absalom's guerrilla fighters without much issue at all. And we have this sort of semi-comical scene where Absalom, you know, is on his horse or his donkey and he flees into the forest and he gets either his hair or his head caught in a tree. You can see it on the, the image on a screen. But then his donkey takes off without him, leaving him tangled in the tree, feet dangling below now, I say semi-comical because any comedy in the situation immediately evaporates when Joab, David's nephew, and ten other soldiers each take turns knifing or spearing the helpless traitor as he spends, suspends midair. Now, if you're paying attention to the original reading, you'll have noticed that David actually ordered that his son be spared. Deal gently with the young man Absalom, he said to his generals. So David's response to the news of his son's death isn't entirely surprising. The news shatters him completely. You know, he falls to the floor, he weeps, he calls out the name of his son. This is all he can really get out 
of himself. Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, over and over and over again. The great warrior David is reduced to a weeping mass. It's that parental love that can withstand and transcend the worst kind of disappointment. David still loved him and hoped to keep him alive. And the loss is almost too much for him to bear. In fact, he says he rather would have died himself. Would that I had died instead of you, he cries, O Absalom. David may have won the battle, he may have kept the kingdom, he may have claimed victory, but the cost was steep. The cost was his son, who he loved. It apparently wasn't worth it. Not all the kingdoms in the world. And I mean, David's not entirely innocent in this situation either. I mean, like, who would have guessed that a great warrior would have a son who was also a great warrior? ready to wage war. And David's inaction stoked Absalom's anger. David's cold shoulder might have been meant to teach him a lesson, but it only fueled more resentment. So compound loss with guilt and shame, and he'd trade anything, he'd give anything at all for his son to live again, even his own life. David would trade at all, all the kingdoms in the world, the crown, the power, anything at all even his own life, to bring back his son. Now, like I said, these stories are deeply personal. You know, they may be about ancient kings and battles and drama, but it's pretty real, right? In that way, they are about us. Anyone who's lost a child will know exactly what David's going through. Whether that loss is literal or metaphorical, the despair, the suffering, the bargaining, the regret for failures, guilt over lost opportunities to set things right, the desire to die, the willingness to die yourself in reversing it. We don't always, we always thought we had more time than we did until we didn't. This is the absolute depth of human hurt, and it doesn't have to be the loss of someone we love. Maybe we've failed as children to our parents. Maybe we've screwed up our lives. Maybe we've dropped the ball, hurt people we love, or even beyond that. If we don't have something like that in our lives, we probably just haven't lived long enough. I say this as a young whippersnapper. But we all have something we'd give anything to fix, set right, do over again. And the problem is, of course, that we just can't do it, right? Nothing David could do would bring back his son or reverse the past. Not even his dying could bring his son back. And I remember sitting at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Vancouver eight or nine years ago and hearing an elderly indigenous woman talk about her son's suicide. He'd struggled with a lifetime of alcohol and drug abuse, and much of it 
used as a way to escape the trauma and shame he'd felt after being abused in a residential school. And though she had appreciated the apologies made by the churches and Canadian government, all the apologies in the world, she said, all the apologies in the world can do nothing to bring back my son. Some things in life are simply irreversible, irreplaceable, unfixable. There's nothing we can do that will ever make them right. No matter how much we want to, no matter how we're willing to give, even our own lives, it's a bit of a harsh truth. I know. But that's exactly what it is. It's the truth. And you know, it's one that atheists and Christians alike all agree on. We're on the same page that the past is the past. And there's no going back. Now, believers and non-believers alike are all on that same page. There are past events that we cannot repair, transgressions we cannot atone for, lives we can't restore. We're on the same page with pretty much everybody in human history. But there is a difference in terms of the convictions of the people of Jesus. We're on the same page, but we don't think that that page is the last one in the story, right? The great American minister and novelist Frederick Buechner included Absalom in his Dictionary of Biblical Characters. He kind of does a modern retelling of the story. I've probably used his stories probably too many times by now, and maybe one of you is like, Buechner again? Ah. But in his telling of Absalom's story, he points out even that in its harsh assessment of things, David's story of loss and regret points us to a whole other chapter in human life. When David wished he had died instead of Absalom, Buechner writes, when David wishes he had died instead, he meant it, of course. If he could have done the boys dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have paid the price for the boy's betrayal of him, he would have paid it. If he could have given his own life to make the boy alive again, he would have given it. But even a king can't do things like that. As later history was to prove, he says, it takes a God. It takes a God to do that. And of course, the later history Buechner was talking about is the life of Jesus, the New Testament. And the God he's talking about is the God we meet in Jesus Christ. This is the conviction at the heart of the Christian story. Jesus is called the son of David. In fact, Jesus is great David's greater son simply because he does everything that David should have done. Jesus does exactly what David longed to do but couldn't. 
He does what Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham and Sarah and Moses reached for but always fell short. He's what you and I wish to be, long to be, but can't muster up the strength or courage on our own to be ourselves. The argument of the New Testament writers is that in Jesus Christ, God herself lived a full, true human life. Fulfilling all righteousness. That in Christ on the cross, God himself absorbed the full consequences of human sin. And in dying the death we were owed in our place, he wiped away all past transgressions in an act of cosmic forgiveness. And then in his resurrection, Jesus conquered death itself, bringing the hope of new life to both the living and the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. David may not have been able to wipe away his past sins nor those of his self-destructive son, and there wasn't anything he could have done to bring his son back, but God can. God can, and in Christ, God already has. Not just for David, but for every human being who's ever set foot on God's green earth or got their foolish heads caught in a tree, dying for the sake of our living. We can't, but God can. So what does this all mean? I mean, well, at its heart, it means two things. First of all, it means that you are forgiven. It means that you are forgiven. Full stop. No strings attached. I mean, we say this a lot every Sunday, maybe a few times every Sunday. But that's only because it's so hard to believe and actually internalize, whether it's betraying someone who loves you or pushing away an alienated child who needs you, you are forgiven. Whatever is holding you in guilt and regret, it has been unraveled for good. Whatever pain, whatever punishment you deserve or think you deserve, it's already been paid. This doesn't mean that you're going to be magically better. It doesn't mean that you're going to be magically perfect or that the world is just going to suddenly change on a dime. And it doesn't mean that you'll be saved from the consequences of your first future actions or the actions of others, but it does mean that nothing you have done is fatal or final. In the eyes of God, your slate has been wiped clean. It means you are forgiven. The guilt and regret you feel is not the end. It need not dominate your story or your life any longer. That was the first thing. And this is the second one. It flows from that first one. This isn't the end for you. Or any of us. Because in the end, it's all been undone. 
you have been given the hope that one day all things will be set right. This is what Jesus' resurrection means. All injustice will be overturned, swords to plowshares, hatred to universal brother and sisterhood, all tears wiped away. David's longing to hold his son again one last time. Your longing to see your mother, your father, your friend one last time. The lives of children ended far too soon by war and violence. Lives scarred by too much suffering. The resurrection proclaims the beautiful promise that everything set in the cold steel of history will one day be melted down and forged anew by the grace of God, by the love of God. Even death itself will be undone and now has lost its sting. I'm reminded of the Lord of the Rings and Cheyenne, who hears me say stuff like this all the time about the Lord of the Rings, is letting out a deep sigh. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings again. But I'm reminded of the part in the Lord of the Rings where the wizard Gandalf comes back to life and his companion Frodo asks him, does this mean that everything sad is becoming untrue? Does this mean that everything sad is becoming untrue? If the resurrection is true, that's what it means. That everything sad is becoming untrue. That one day the world's great knot of pain and loss will be untied for good by the grace of God. Easter was just the first tug on the string. Everything sad is becoming untrue. That's the second thing. Now, friends, it's true that not even the greatest among us can reverse history. Not even the wisest, most righteous, most penitent among us can fix the past or erase our guilt for past deeds, nor, the, nor lift the heaviest weight on our hearts. And not even the greatest among us can give anything to bring back the dead. This is all true. But there's something that is more true, more good, more beautiful. The good news is that God can. Not only that God can, but God has in Jesus Christ. It means that you are forgiven. No sadness, no death is terminal. You and I have, our world has a future. May this sink into our bones. May you experience the true freedom of forgiveness and the hope of new life because Christ has died and is risen. Everything sad is becoming untrue. Let us pray.
You, O Lord, are the God of our ancestors. And you are holiness. You, O God of Israel, are justice. You, O God of David, are the redress of all wrongs. The setting of all things right. The beauty is, though, that you do so as the crucified one. Not through the clenched fist of punishment, nor the distance of a well-meaning bystander, but by the might of your forgiveness, the true strength of your broken body, given freely for our sake and for the life of the world. By your resurrection power, smash the chains of our guilt and regret, heal our shame, relieve our pain, and most of all, help us to live boldly and freely in the light of the hope of your world to come, that temple of your pure presence that we long for more than life itself. Free us to make amends for our wrongs, to learn from our past mistakes, to do better and to know better to give of ourselves more freely, more fully, and more faithfully, simply by knowing how the story ends. With every tear wiped away and everything sad becoming untrue. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.